Well, we'll, we'll start this morning with a little bit of audience participation. All I need you to do is raise your hand, be honest when I ask you these questions. No judgments for anybody sitting next to you if you don't lean this way, but where are my Christmas music people? Christmas music listener, get them up. Okay, next question. Where are my Christmas music people who start playing the Christmas tunes before Thanksgiving? Okay, I appreciate your transparency. Where are my people who at least wait until you start washing the Thanksgiving dishes before you start playing the Christmas music? Okay, I'm, I'm kind of in your category there. Like, I, I got to close the book on Thanksgiving before, before I start playing the, the Christmas music, but then the playlist comes out that runs the, the spectrum uh, from Elvis's Blue Christmas to Run DMC's Christmas and Hollis. So that, that's kind of what I'm, I'm dealing with. And so I, I am definitely into the Christmas music. Well, in that spirit, we're going to look at a Christmas song this morning that happens before Christmas. Because what you're going to see over these three weeks of Advent is that we're looking at these passages in Luke's gospel where songs or song-like verses are being shared regarding the birth of Jesus. And all three of these share a perspective of hope in them. And that's part of why we name this series The Thrill of Hope is because we want you to have hope during this Advent season. And so last week we looked at Mary's song in Luke's Gospel, the Magnificat. Today we're going to look at a different song. Your text is going to call it a prophecy. Uh, but, it, but it has the same hymn-like quality and structure of a biblical song. And this is from John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, that he, he gives after John the Baptist is born. And some Christian traditions still sing this song during Advent. Well, we don't, but, but there are many Christian traditions around the world that still sing this song during this time of year. And so we're going to jump right into part one, which is the song in and of itself. It's in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. You can follow along in your Bible. We'll have them on the screen. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Then his, being John the Baptist, father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, referring to John the Baptist, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give us light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. That's a pretty good song. That's a pretty good song. This song has kind of become a Christmas hit in some traditions where it's being sung in many Christian traditions around the world. And, and, and I know that it says it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and I absolutely believe that. But, but did Zechariah just whip that up right there on the spot? That's pretty good, Zach, that you could just call that up out of nothing. But maybe, maybe the, the words had been brewing there for a while. How long does it take to write a hit? How long? Have you ever thought about that? That's kind of where my mind goes in these things, and I'm a little bit OCD about that. So I got a few answers for you. How long does it take to write a hit song? Well, it depends on the song. 
Depends on the songwriter. Depends on how long it takes inspiration to strike. So I'm going to give you a few examples. Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Most of you know that. This big, sprawling, six-minute kind of epic that starts one place, goes crazy towards the end, and then lands kind of quietly. That took six years for Queen to write that song. Another example, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run, another kind of big epic, kind of builds and has this, this, all these working parts in there. And uh, quite frankly, I think that's Bruce's best song, and you can disagree with me, but you're wrong. But that, I may allow Thunder Road, and then after that, it's all off. But six months for Bruce Springsteen to write that. And you're probably sitting at home like, I don't listen to your old man songs. Okay, so for my 30 and under crowd, my Chemical Romance is Welcome to the Black Parade, which is very anthemic, and it builds, and it ha- that took about five years to write. So for my younger people, there's one for you. Um, Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton's two most fam- uh, famous songs that are associated with her, Jolene and I Will Always Love You. No, Whitney Houston did not write that song. She wrote both of those songs in the same day. The same day she wrote both of those songs. And when reflecting on it, Dolly said, that was a pretty good day. Pretty good day for songwriting. And to put us in the Christmas spirit, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, which you probably heard in the car on the way over here because it's everywhere. That song, The Nuts and Bolts, was written in about 15 minutes. She had a a songwriter that she, she wrote a lot of songs with. About 15 minutes. They had a few loose ends to tie up after that. But that song was written mostly in 15 minutes. And to this date, that song alone has made Mariah Carey over $60 million in royalties. That one song. Can you imagine that? A song that you kind of cranked out in about 15 minutes has earned you over $60 million. Just that one song. And that song's only sung and played about six weeks out of the year. You don't hear that song every day. You don't hear that song in April. But that song has made that much money. And some of you have already written in the margin of your notes, must get to work on new Christmas hit. So here's Zechariah. This song could have been building for a while. And give you a little bit of context, a little bit of flashback. You could back up in uh, chapter 1 of Luke's gospel to kind of shape how this whole story came into being here and why this song was important and why Zechariah's words were important. Because if you go back to around verse 11 in chapter 1, we find out some stuff about Zechariah. We find out, one, that he's a priest in Israel. We find out that uh, the woman he's married to, Elizabeth, that they are both kind of well along in years. They're, they're older and, and they, they've never been able to have a child of their own. They've never been able to conceive. And so Zechariah goes into the temple to, to present the sin offering for Israel. And the angel Gabriel shows up and says, Zechariah, your prayer has been answered. Your wife Elizabeth is going to, to have a child and he is going to prepare the way for the Lord. And after being told all of this stuff, Zechariah has the nerve to look at the angel and say, how can I be sure any of this is going to happen? Well, he just told you your name. He just told you your wife's name. He just told you about the prayer that, that's been answered. And then he told, told you who this child is going to become. And then you say, well, I'm not so sure. Let me see some ID, angel. And then the angel responds with, well, because you didn't have any faith and you didn't believe in this, you're not going to be able to speak until after this child was born. So here's Zechariah, who can no longer speak because of that, and goes home after his time in the temple, and uh, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And so he could have had these words, 
He could have been in complete silence for possibly 10 months because the scripture just says that he can't speak, but most likely, and most scholars agree, that it also means that he couldn't hear. That's kind of a bundled package. Being deaf and mute are kind of contained in the same word. And if you don't, if you need further proof, if you back up to verse 62, it says that after the time John is born, that they are making gestures to Zechariah to find out what his name is. Why do you need to make gestures to somebody if they can hear you? So he has probably sat in complete silence. Not only can he not speak, he can't hear. For 10 plus months until the child is born. And so maybe these words are starting to form over that period of silence. And what was the last thing that he heard besides the angel saying, you're not going to be able to hear say anything for a long time? Was the angel's words about who his son is going to be. What were those words again? What did the angel say about my son? And so Zechariah had a lot of time in silence. He couldn't hear anything. He couldn't say anything. And I wonder at what point did he open himself up to God's Spirit to speak to him as he reflected on everything that's going on in this moment. The angel's words. Elizabeth's pregnancy. At some point he has to become aware of Mary's pregnancy and who she's carrying and who he will become. And trying to put all of this together as if to say, God, what are you doing in all of this, in this silence? Which brings us to part two, the silence itself. The silence in and of itself. Can you imagine being in a situation where you have been isolated? Where things have been stripped from you? Where, you're, where you can't do the things that you took for granted? And you've been placed in this situation feeling as if you've been sitting in what sometimes is called the silence of God for nine, ten months? Can you imagine a hypothetical situation like this? What do we do with the silence of God? How do we handle it? Better question. What are we doing while we are in it? What do we do while we are in this silence or what feels like silence? Are we focused on that? Are we focused on the silence alone or what we perceive as God's silence? Have we become fixated on it? God, when will you break this? When will this be over? When will I hear from you? Or are we taking advantage of that time and listening to the song that maybe God is writing and crafting in us, in the silence. Because silence, or what we perceive as God's silence, can be a great teacher. Silence can become a great teacher for us if we will let it. A man named Richard Foster, a teacher, a pastor, an author, was a pioneer on teaching the spiritual disciplines. And he wrote, uh, his well-known book is called A Celebration of Discipline. If you're interested in reading that or looking into it, many schools, many Bible colleges and seminaries will make you read that book as part of a class. And it's listed of all the, the, the disciplines in Scripture. And one of the disciplines is an entire chapter on silence and how sitting in silence and, listen, and letting God speak to your heart and speak to your soul in silence is a, a good thing, and it's a spiritual discipline. And as he's reflecting on silence, he, write, he wrote in an online article about silence. He says, silence, you see, creates in us an open, empty space where we are enabled to become attentive to God, where we can listen to Him. But it's a discipline. Sitting in silence is a discipline. And the book of Hebrews tells us that no discipline at the time sounds fun and feels exciting and, and good for us, but after a while it, it builds in us character and perseverance. And so silence can be good for us. And I think that we, in our silence we want to hear from God. We want to receive from Him. But we have to put in the time. We have to put in the work to listen 
for what he's speaking in the silence. Here's Zechariah, mute, again, most likely deaf. The only things he can hear during this time are his thoughts and God's. And at some point, maybe he can't even tell the difference. (laughs) Am I crazy? Are these my thoughts? Are these the Lord's thoughts? And those are the things growing inside of him over this time period. And when that silence is lifted, the song filled with hope and truth pours out from him. I propose to you this morning, what if we're not really sitting in the silence of God or what we perceive as the silence of God? What if we're, and I'm going to use this word, please forgive me and just go with it. What if we're pregnant? What if we're pregnant? What if something is growing inside of us? What if God is using the silence we perceive? It's actually him growing a song of hope in us. Last nine months have been hard. It's been tough. It's been tough on everybody. Nobody is exempt. The Christmas sign up town is not exempt. That just got taken out. Nothing is, nothing is safe. It's been hard. What has God been growing in you in that time period? What's the song? What's he teaching us in this silence? That open, empty space that Foster refers to has been created. There's no doubt about it. I dare say never before in our lifetime has more empty, open time been given to us to listen to God's Spirit and have those words grow in us. What is he saying? And am I listening? Because it can be words of hope. It can be a song of hope. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be something we're going to be initially thrilled to hear at the beginning. Most of the time when God shares stuff with me, I'm not super thrilled about it. That doesn't make it less true. And it doesn't mean that, there's, there, that there isn't any hope in there. There is. But that doesn't mean I'm super jazzed to hear it. Thanks, Lord. <laughs> Thanks for pointing out another one of my flaws and my sinful attitudes and things that need to, be, need to be put before the cross of Jesus to be cleaned up. But there is hope in that. But just like with pregnancy, it's not always fun. Pregnancy's not always fun. You're like, you don't know anything about that. You never had a child. You're right. But I've been around two pregnancies in my house. And I got her permission before I shared this, so you don't need to text my wife after this. And both times it started out fun. Ah, we're going to have a baby. Woo, this is so fun. And then about, and, and as, as, as the, the little bump started getting bigger and bigger, and, and my children, which were both pretty decent-sized kids when they were delivered, kept growing and growing and making my wife more and more uncomfortable, and her heartburn was off the charts, and she couldn't sleep well and, and, and was tired all the time and all this stuff. By about month or seven, seven or eight, she was like, let's do this. Let's get this baby out. And maybe that's part of your story as well. The growth of this year hasn't been fun. Nobody would say, man, March to, March to December 2020 has been amazing even from the jump. But if you just see the negative, do you trust that God is growing something good, a song of hope in you? Do I trust that? Because if I don't, then I'm probably not listening. This is probably not on God. This is probably on me for not being a better listener. Because you see, God's scripture and God's record in silence usually ends in birth. God's record of breaking silence ends in birth, and it typically will end in a birth of a song. A song is somehow connected to the silence and the birth. Don't believe me? 
Let's go back to the beginning of the book of Exodus where we're told that after some time, after Joseph had died and the Hebrews are in, are in Egypt and Egypt begins to forget what Joseph did, the scripture tells us that Egypt uh, made the Hebrews their slaves. And for the next 400 years, Israel had to do Egypt's dirty work, had to build all their temples and their pyramids and had to work hard and were beaten and were abused as slaves. And for 400 years, Israel sat in silence and said, God, where are you? I thought we were the chosen people. I thought we were your people. And this is our destiny. This is how we're going to ride it out as slaves here in Egypt. And then what happens? Moses, plagues, Exodus. And if the culmination of that event happens with the parting of the Red Sea and Israel crosses through and then God closes the waters on top of Egypt and puts the final nail in the coffin of the Egyptians. And if that's in Exodus 14, do you know how Exodus 15 starts? With a song. You can look it up. Moses on the other side of the Red Sea delivers a song of praise to God for deliverance. And God breaks the silence with a song. 430 years from the end of the Old Testament and the prophet Malachi that's, that's talking about Jesus and talking about the one who's going to come before him that we know as John the Baptist. 430 years from then to the birth of Jesus. 430 years of silence. 430 years of Lord. You said there's going to be a deliverer. Lord, here's all these prophecies. We've been passed around from nation to nation and ruler to ruler. And when is this going to end? And when it ends and the birth of Jesus, what happens next? A group of angels show up to shepherds and sing with a song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill towards men. A song birthed out of silence. John, exiled on the island of Patmos, follower of Jesus, stuck out there to ride out his days in this island by himself. The silence of God is thickening. God, where are you in all this? This is, this is how I end? This, this is how I, I wrap up my days here? with nothing on the island of Patmos. And what happens next? It's God's revelation to John. It's our last book of the Scripture. And the songs that the Scripture contains in it, where it says, these are the songs you're going to hear. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The song birthed out of the silence. And that's God's track record. So are we listening for that? In the silence. And Advent is about the arrival of Jesus. We're building up to this. We are expecting him this time of year. As one Advent devotional author that, that I've been re, uh, reading a book where it's different authors uh, during the Advent season, and this, this really jumped out to me with the pregnancy language that it just says, we give birth to Christ in our time, in, in our Advent season, not by doing, but by believing and loving the mysterious, infinite one who stirs within. This requires trust that something of great and saving importance is growing, I love this, and kicking its heels in you. As the song grows, if you're listening to it, it's going to start out small and it's going to build and build and build and it might start to make you uncomfortable. It's starting to dig its heels in you as it's taking shape to the point where it's time to share, to give birth to that out of the silence. Which leads us to the final part this morning, which is our song. Our song. 
If you notice in Zechariah's song that's birthed out of silence, the last words he heard from the angel were about his son. This is who your son is going to be. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. So shouldn't the first words that he, said, he speaks after being cooped up in silence for almost 11 months, almost a year, and he said, oh my goodness, I'm so glad my silence is finally lifted. You've got to hear what this angel said to me almost a year ago. And he doesn't even start there. He starts with the words of praise about the Messiah himself. He just pushes his kid out of the way. Let me tell you about the Messiah. Over the course of 10 plus months, God does something in Zechariah's heart that shifts his words in almost a year from being about what Gabriel shared to him personally to what the Messiah is going to be, who he is going to be. And he shares that first. Israel had gone a long time without hearing from God. And when Zechariah opens his mouth, the song is a reminder that God had never been silent, that he had remembered, verse 72. Zechariah says, he remembered his covenant with our ancestor Abraham. What was the covenant with Abraham? Two parts, Genesis chapter 12. Number one, you're going to be a great nation. What was the problem with that plan? Abraham and Sarah couldn't have any kids. God, how are you going to spend something out of nothing? I wonder if Zechariah, in his silence, remembered that line, (laughs) was shown that line by the Spirit that said, Zechariah, dude, you're not the first person to have a miraculous conception in the Scripture. Just because you're old, just because your wife is along in years, you think you guys are the first elderly couple to have a kid? Your existence is because of this. Your existence is based on a miraculous conception. What was the second part of the covenant? All people will be blessed through you, Abraham. Zechariah's words are the culmination of that event. And it is through Jesus that we are going to experience all those things, to experience the fullness of the covenant made with Abraham all those years ago. He's singing a Christmas song before Christmas ever happened. Because God was also shaping, back to those words, the mysterious infinite one in Zechariah's heart during the silence. I wonder if Zechariah thought back through the prophecies that he had grown up thinking one way, and after having this experience, he says, nah, I think it's trending towards this. I think this is how this is meant to be played out. Because if we're listening to and for God during the silence, or what we think is the silence, then our focus is going to shift. It's going to shift from us to him. It's going to shift from us to him. Back to the pregnancy analogy. We start out, first find out that you're pregnant. You know, it's, it's really more about the parents and you're excited for the parents. And, oh, this is so great. We're going to have a baby. And then, again, as it gets closer to the birth, then it starts to shift towards the baby. It starts to shift towards the kid. we got to make sure that, we, that, that I'm eating things that are good for the baby. we got to make sure we get this room ready for the baby. we got to put this crib together for the baby. Okay, it's time to go to the hospital. Do we have all the items for the baby? Do we have the, the car seat for the baby? Is everything ready for the baby? And it shifts. And Zachariah shifted as well. It shifts off of his baby to the baby. When I'm in my silence... I'm a miserable, whiny jerk. (laughs) That's the best word I can give this morning. Oh, God, how long am I going to be in this? Why is this about me? Why do I I have to sit in this? And when are you going to talk to me? 
And then finally, when I realize that God's heart is not going to be stirred or moved based on my whining, no more than my heart is moved or stirred based on my children's whining, then I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right, we're past that. Now it's, it's clearly something bigger than myself. Lord, what do you have to say to me in this period of silence? Because if you feel like you've been in silence these past nine, ten months, I'm with you. I get it. Don't forget that the song's being written right now in you. And oh, church, how I long, how I long to hear the things that God has shared with this body when the silence of the season is lifted, when the silence of the season is over. The things to hear that's being written on your hearts or being shared with your spirits the way God is speaking to your souls during this time to hear those things when this is lifted. I look forward to it. I wonder what those are going to be like. Are they going to be like Mary's song last week? He has done great things for me, in me, through me, in spite of me. Or is it going to be like Zechariah's song? He visited and redeemed the season for me. Here's how. But we must be listening. We've got to be attentive to the words and the melodies being written and then be prepared to share when it's time. Be prepared to share because when God breaks his or our silence, a song of hope, a song of hope is what's going to happen.